I'm pleased now to introduce tonight's guest, Dr. David Lawrence. Dr. Lawrence served as CEO and chairman of Kaiser Foundation Health Plan and Hospitals until his retirement in 2002. He was appointed CEO in 1991 and chairman the next year. He currently pursues interests in new business development, teaching public policy and writing. He's the author of From Chaos to Care, The Promise of Team-Based Medicine. Dr. Lawrence is founding board member of the Lucian Leap Institute of the National Patient Safety Foundation and a distinguished advisor to the NPSF. He is a member of the Institute of Medicine and the AOA Physician Honor Society. He's a senior venture partner with Physic Ventures and a member of the boards of Agilent Technologies, McKesson Corporation, Proventus, WellPartner, and Proteus Biomed. He also does a whole lot of other things. And we're very, very proud to, have, to present tonight Dr. David Lawrence. Thank you. I can't tell you what an honor it is to be here this evening for two reasons. One is, this is a very special evening. In Zocalo in Mexico City tonight, I think it's the night they call the Gritos de la Libertad, which is the night before the uh, liberation or the, the uh, Independence Day in Mexico. So it's a very special day there. I know there's a big celebration in Los Angeles as well. I feel very honored to be here for that. It's also, interestingly enough, primary care week in Los Angeles, and uh, I didn't know that until this evening, and I probably would have changed my talk, but uh, <laughs> uh, you know, starting out with the, pres- the supposition or the question, is the primary care physician obsolete, is probably not the way to begin the, uh, to honor this week, but I hope you'll see as we get into this that my uh, supposition or my answer is more optimistic than the, than the question and the title. I'd like to start by uh, just reflecting on how important myth is in our society. Myths are. And one of them that is particularly important in American mythology is the Western cowboy. Kathleen Parker, the columnist, describes the Western cowboy as the American heroic prototype. And she attaches some words to that. Strong. Brave, resourceful, dutiful, self-sufficient, independent, autonomous. Think of CEOs who fit that image. Jack Welch, Al Dunlap, famous uh, Chainsaw Al was known for that. Or our movie heroes who play that kind of cowboy role. Clint Eastwood and Dirty Harry. Or many of the John Wayne films. It's interesting that cowboy mythology suffuses many of our views about the doctor. And it suffuses many of the ways we as doctors think about ourselves. Atul Gawande, the brilliant surgeon essayist, wrote, actually gave his commencement speech to this year's graduating class of medical students at Harvard. And the title of the The talk was Cowboys and Pit Crews. And he made the comment in his opening observations, we train, hire, and pay doctors to be cowboys. Strong, brave, resourceful, dutiful, self-sufficient, independent, autonomous. Think Marcus Welby, Dr. Kildare, the irascible, for those of you who are old enough to remember, the irascible Ben Casey surgeon. 
and more recently House, MD. It's interesting how we're socialized to think this way, and I'll just tell a quick anecdote. When I was a third-year medical student, almost 50 years ago now, good God, um, I was on the ward, we called them wards then, um, as a third-year medical student. It was my first round that I was making, and I was told that I had to remember and have at my fingertips the lab results from the two patients to whom I'd been assigned. So I got up to on the ward and opened the medical record and quickly, as hard as I could, memorized all of those lab results. I had them also in what we used to call our peripheral brain. We didn't have cell phones then. We had these big black books that we put everything in that we carried around in our white coats, quite proudly I'd had. So I entered them all in, memorized them, and then went on the ward rounds with the attending physician and the cast of 50 that you know, waltzed along with him from patient to patient to patient. And we got to my patient, and of course he was very, very skillful at identifying the weakest member in the tribe, me, as a third-year medical student. He kind of pierced his way through the 30 or 40 people standing at bedside and said, Mr. Lawrence, what are the lab results? Bam! I had him. Laid him out for him. He said, very good. Interesting. Where'd you get those? I said, from the medical record. He said, where'd the medical record information come from? And I said, the hospital lab. And he said, get off the floor. There was dead silence. Not a good way to start medical third year round. Then he went on to explain. He said, a professional, a physician, never accepts someone else's work when he can do it himself. Independent, autonomous, self-sufficient, dutiful. Off to the student lab I went to repeat all of those lab tests to do it myself instead of accepting someone else's work. Think for a moment of those of you who are physicians what it's like to serve on the ward as your first year resident, third, second year resident attending. Everyone does a history and physical, partly for learning, but partly because someone may have missed something. It's part of the process. You don't accept what anybody else has found, you do it yourself. There's a problem with this model, a very serious problem with this model. Gawande says it very well in his commencement address. Medicine's complexity has exceeded our individual capabilities as physicians. How complex has it become? There are several ways of coming at that. We're seeing an adver advertisement today. Uh, it just started appearing, IBM talking about their uh, effort with Watson. Uh, to do diagnosis, but uh, there was an interesting throwaway line that actually is, uh, has a basis in fact, and that is that the knowledge in medicine is doubling about every five years. Now, a way of thinking about this is this. In 1950, right after World War II, there were about 10 to 12 physician specialties. And today there are well over 120. Here's another way. Right after World War II, there were about the same number of, of non-physician health worker categories, 10 to 12. Today, there are over 225. 
Now this reflects the complexity of medicine. It's kind of a, a placeholder for all of this complexity that goes on in medicine, this doubling of knowledge every five years. I was reflecting on what it was like when I was in medical school, or I think my, one of my first patients on the ward, another experience like I just described, was a patient with rheumatic heart disease, something we don't see often anymore, who was taken into an experimental area of the hospital. And an experimental procedure was done to try and figure out what the vascularization, what the vessels were in his heart. And during the procedure, his heart stopped. We resuscitated him. He subsequently died several days later. That was cardiac catheterization. It was an experimental procedure. This was 1964, 65. And it's now done so routinely that, you know, I, I imagine in some parts of the U.S. there are probably places where no man over 40 has survived or has avoided having a cardiac catheterization. Now, that's well, well overstated. But think about this increase in knowledge that's been going on, and you can cite example after example. Here's, at a clinical level, what we think about with this complexity of medicine. When my mother was 88, she fell and broke her leg in a couple of places, her upper leg. And she also sprained her wrist and badly hurt her shoulder. She was a very, very healthy woman and very active, very sentient. She was really with it. Interesting lady. She fell. She had to have surgery. And so I, I happened to be in Oregon at the time and stayed with her and watched her care for about 30 days. In that 30-day period, when she was in the hospital for three or four and then in a rehab center doing physical therapy for another two to three weeks, trying to get back to ambulation and so on, this is the number of people who took care of her. This is a rough count, because I, I didn't see everybody 24-7, but this is my rough count. She had 10 different physician specialists. She had 50 nurses and well over a hundred other healthcare providers who took care of her and made clinical decisions that affected the outcome of her care. That's normal now. When my great grand, my great uncle, excuse me, was an internist in Portland, he carried most of what he needed to diagnose and treat people in his black bag. That's not today. So what we have is a model of the independent autonomous physician coming smack dab up against the complexity of modern medicine, 21st century medicine. And what we can conclude from that is that that model is obsolete. Physicians practicing alone or in small single specialty groups of three to five, which by the way represent still more than 50% of physicians in practice of all specialties, are probably not delivering the care that we can now deliver with 21st century capabilities. They're probably not delivering care as safely as we know how to deliver it, and they're certainly not delivering it as inexpensively as we know we can deliver 21st century care when it's well organized. The model is obsolete. But is the primary care physician obsolete? No. Because in this kind of an environment, with this kind of complexity, with this number of people who are involved in care, 
The patient needs a, me- a vehicle, a mechanism for bringing the care together, for helping coordinate it, for advocating on his or her behalf, etc. And that's a critical role for a primary care physician, as well as trying to understand what these presenting symptoms are, what these presenting problems are, trying to make sense out of the unknowable or the uncertain at the entrance into the care system. So a resounding no, the primary care physician is not obsolete, but he is endangered. He's endangered or she's endangered for a very simple reason, and that is we have too few now And the projections are that by 2025, we will be short in this country somewhere between 45,000 and 55,000 primary care physicians and 150,000 to 180,000 physicians in total. Given the growth in the population, the aging of the population, and the increasing diversity of the population. Of particular concern, is the care for the Latino population in California, for example. Five percent of physicians in California are of Spanish surname, and we use that as a surrogate to try and figure out whether or not they are capable in Spanish. A higher proportion is is capable in Spanish, but about five percent of physicians actively practicing in California now are of Spanish surnames. To treat a population that is how big in California Latino, somewhere around 30%. That number has been falling, by the way, over the last 10 to 20 years. It's not going up. It's dropped fairly dramatically, mainly because California passed an interesting law about 20 years ago, I believe it was, to limit the influx of foreign-trained physicians or internationally trained medical graduates, most of whom were coming out of Latin America and settling in and taking care of the Latino population. And once that bigot was turned off, why we failed, as we have for a long period of time, to train sufficient numbers of minority physicians, Latinos and blacks especially, to take care of their proportion, at least, of the population in the United States. The problem is we really do know a great deal about the effects of lack of access, lack of cultural sensitivity, lack of care that's appropriate to a culture, etc. And we know about the wide disparities in health and health status across different ethnic groups in, the, in our society. So what we have is a situation in which there are too few physicians in primary care being trained, too few physicians selecting primary care, The numbers are already too small to care for the current population, and it's a situation that's going to be aggravated over the next 10 to 15 years at least. We had hoped probably five years ago maybe, maybe as long ago as 10 years ago, that states would begin to open new medical schools and begin setting up incentives for training primary care physicians, but with the state Financial crises generally across the country, most of these medical schools have been under uh, intense pressure if they've opened at all. And so there's not an increase in the numbers of primary care physicians being trained, and the incentives in the Health Reform Act are simply not strong enough to keep people in primary care or to drive people into primary care. So what do we have? We have a model that's obsolete, and we have an endangered species trying to deliver primary care. So how are we responding? What's happening? There is some good news. I want to talk about three models that seem to be emerging. 
And I also want to mention what I would call the old cowboy on steroids as another model. And that's the concierge medicine model, where a wealthy population can buy access to a a primary care physician 24-7, 365, and it works great as long as you don't need really complex care and need care to be coordinated by a system that's built to do that. Typically, a concierge physician doing exactly what physicians have done for a long time is have a group of people to whom they refer. They may or may not be good, but they are the people that that physician will use and refer to if necessary. I would describe that as as the old model on steroids. Uh, It pulls physicians out of the general pool of primary care physicians because in fact to do 24-7, 365 care, guarantee that to the people who buy access to you, you have to reduce your patient total, your total patient uh, population that you care for. So I want to move that off to the side. I don't see that as a viable, long-term, public policy-oriented kind of solution, although it may be very attractive to those who can afford it and very attractive to the physicians who want to practice that way. So what are the other models, the ones that seem to have more purchase? Well, one is a movement we're starting to see of physicians forming groups and forming teams of physician and non-physician professionals to take care of patients across the spectrum of patients, but typically focused on patients with chronic disease like diabetes, hypertension, asthma, etc., cancer. This is really an exciting development because we have pretty good evidence that team-based care done properly using evidence-based guidelines, having decision systems in place, protocols, checklists, all the sorts of things that we have heard talked about a lot, actually produces better outcomes. And the best examples are in kids with asthma, moderate to severe asthma. We've seen in my experience at Kaiser and other places as well, that when you provide that team-based surrounding for a family and and a child with asthma, you actually reduce the frequency of emergency room visits substantially and take hospitalizations for severe asthma to nearly zero. What that means for a family, of course, is that they're not up all night all the time. It means that the parents can actually continue working, the kid can stay in school, doesn't miss as many days of schools, and if they have siblings, the other kids are getting the attention that when a kid is often sick, gets robbed from them. Pretty impressive. That's one model. In its highest form, you hear a lot about it, and it's built into the health reform uh, law, is the medical home, which is the, the idea of that is that a patient will identify with a physician and a, and a team and have all needs taken care of by that team. There is some leveraging of the physician's time in that model so that instead of a panel of 1,000 or 1,500 or 2,000 patients, sometimes they can move up to 2,500 or 3,000. But doing this is not enough leverage to close the availability gap for primary care. But it's an important model, and we'll see a lot of it. The second model is the really the Accountable Care Organization, which was built into the uh, Health Reform Act, but it has its antecedents probably 10 to 15 years earlier. Building integrated care delivery systems, not necessarily Kaiser's, not necessarily group health, maybe virtual integrated delivery systems that bring together physicians in the community into a more integrated delivery system. That was a cornerstone of what was called the Crossing the Quality Chasm report by the Institute of Medicine, a seminal report that was published in 2002. 
And it was also a cornerstone in the study on patient errors that was published by IOM called To Err as Human. That was published in 1999. So this is an idea and a recommendation that's been around for at least a decade. And we're seeing more and more organizations trying to form those kinds of integrated care systems. And their characteristics are fairly interesting. First of all, these systems attempt to build collaboration and collaborative problem solving amongst the clinicians. They attempt to become evidence-based, use the science to build their protocols for how they're going to care for patients, at least to the limits of science. And then you have to make judgments, obviously, that go beyond that. There's risk sharing, so that instead of being paid, as physicians are historically on a piecework basis, fee-for-service, you do more work, you get paid more. You do more surgery, you get paid more. So guess what you do? More surgery. Um, Piecework has been the way we pay physicians since at least the early 1900s. It's inflationary and very antithetical to the notion of collaboration and joint problem solving, because it's very hard to decide, figure out, Who's, who's contributing the value and how you're going to charge for it? In the accountable care organizations, you're paid one lump sum to take care of a patient, another patient, or a family, and that's the lump sum, and you have to use that to take care of that patient. You are at risk. And you divide up that lump sum based on how you as an organization feel the best way is and the fairest way is to reward people, all the people who participate. <laughs> And of course, many of the insurers, certainly in the, in the uh, health care reform legislation, are moving in that direction. This is a very interesting uh, direction. It is stimulated by the IOM reports, and it's stimulated by the legislation. Right now, the last number I heard was somewhere around 150 organizations have applied for a, uh, accountable care organiz, uh, organization status from uh, the Center on Medicaid, CMS. Uh, We'll see how it develops over time, but it's a very interesting movement. The third model I just want to touch on briefly, and that's what I would describe as disruptive innovations. Now, if you've had an opportunity to read Clay Christensen, Jerry Grossman, and Jason Wang's book called The Innovator's Prescription, you'll know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, I'd strongly urge you to read it. It's a couple years old now. Basically, what's happened is interesting. We've got this unusual confluence. It's, it's without precedent in American healthcare. We've got a supply-demand imbalance that is fairly significant and projected to get very bad going forward. We've got the results of probably 60 years of unprecedented investment in medical science and technology that has given us much greater insight into disease and treatment and diagnosis. We have an economic circumstance in which the, com the companies in the United States, the competitors against whom we're, we're uh, trying to sell our goods and, and uh, survive, we're having a heck of a time competing because of the costs of medical care. It's unsustainable at the level of the GDP that we're now spending on health care. At least many people believe it's unsustainable. It's 17, 16, 17% going on towards 20% by the end of the decade, maybe even higher. It's, it, it's unsustainable. The fourth thing that's going on that we've not seen before is the activation of consumers. If you stop and think about what we now do that we wouldn't have thought about 10 years ago, 
I mean, we manage our, our investments online. We, we manage our banking online oftentimes. We do our searches for restaurants. I mean, name it. We are finding all sorts of information, and we're managing many things that historically we asked ex experts to manage for us. Well, what this means is that we have these forces and unusual capabilities to address many of the issues that are created by this gap between the supply of primary care and what we need in primary care. Because in addition to what I mentioned, we also have nearly ubiquitous mobile telephony and, and connected uh, connections that way, and internet service, the web. And so what's beginning to happen is really interesting. In the area of primary care, we have identified what it is that, that needs to be done in primary care and are experimenting through the creation of new businesses with ways to deliver those directly to the consumer without involving the physician, without involving the care system. So let me be more specific. How would you like to pull one of these guys out and say, hmm, should I go to the doctor today? Where would I go? If I need to go to an emergency room, what's the weight in the emergency rounds, rooms around the community? iTriage does that. It's an application for an iPhone being experimented with. Watson, supposed to help the doctor make decisions. What it does is codify the evidence and help you establish the probabilities that X, Y, and Z means that you have this versus that. Well, once codified, why does there need to be a professional intermediary? Triage. How about this? I pick up the phone and I say to somebody at the other end, my mother has just had her medication changed. She has large cell squamous cell carcinoma of the lung. And her oncologist just changed her from treatment X to treatment Y. Should I let this happen? And at the other end of the line, they do a quick internet search using an algorithm very similar to the kinds of things that Google does, or actually it's a little bit more sophisticated even than Google's with an artificial intelligence attached to it, and come back with the latest information about what that medication does, what it's useful for, what its side effects are, compared to the medication that my mother was once on, or was before on. And they print out a five or 10 page report in language I as a consumer can understand. And if necessary, hook me up with somebody who can explain the report, not a clinician. Because most of the time when we try to explain things as clinicians, guess what? We impose our biases on the solutions. If I'm a surgeon, my bias is going to be, let's cut. You know? If I like this treatment, my bias is going to be, let's do this. The idea is to present objective information with the understanding that consumers are going to make decisions based on their value systems. Now, there's a company. I, I'm talking about a company I happen to know. There are many others that do this as well. This one has 2 million people enrolled. And it does it across the entire spectrum of illness and treatment. It's, it's agnostic. And it does it all by phone and internet. Takes care of two million people for $2.30 per employee per month. 
and does it with 80 FTEs. Now that's disruptive. Satisfaction off the map, or off the, off the charts, and by the way, their own internal studies checked by UCSF, that's the school north of here, um, is, <laughs> looked at what the savings were to the employers. And year on year, healthcare costs were reduced by 15% in the population that had access to this service. And the reason is they navigate through their decision-making system more efficiently than we do when we don't have that, or when a doctor is trying to help us move through the system, because as doctors, we don't know how the bigger system operates that well. Patients often describe ping-ponging through the system as they lurch from one specialist to another. This makes it more effective for them. Or let's take something else. How about a pill that has a small silicon chip embedded on the pill? that is activated when the pill hits the stomach and sends a radio wave to a receiver on the stomach, on the stomach wall, that goes to a mobile phone and is sent to a caregiver, a family member, saying, mom forgot to take her meds or mom did take her meds. That now exists. That technology now exists. We can go on down the line and what you have are Technologies beginning to emerge for triage, for navigation, for chronic disease management, for prevention, primary prevention, for secondary prevention, early disease screening, preclinical disease screening. Think genomics, proteomics, metabolomics, all of the omics that are beginning to emerge as we get better and better signatures of, of preclinical disease, and wellness. Now those are all things that used to be done inside of primary care, by the primary care doc. In the absence of enough of those docs and the costs of those docs operating in the system that they have historically operated in, we're now finding alternatives that are far less expensive, more reliable, and far more attractive to consumers. Because they're available anytime the consumer wants them, 24-7, 365. Find me a doctor who is available 24-7, 365, with that kind of breadth of capabilities. So the, we have these three models, and they're all active now in response to what I described as the obsolete model and the endangered primary care physician. My hunch is that what we'll see over the next decade or so is all three of these models in different forms uh, across healthcare because it's not clear which is going to predominate. They all have great value. I do think, though, that because of the supply-demand gap in primary care, and because of availability and cost issues, that these direct-to-consumer kinds of solutions using technology will actually be growing faster than some of the other solutions. They are scalable, they're much less expensive, they can be far more reliable than what we've had historically. And that's why people like Walgreens and Walmart and CVS and Google and Microsoft are circling around these solutions, looking for the ones that they want to snap up and take to scale. But there are two things to think about here before I close. The first is, 
that all of this is mediated because, or through the issue of trust. And one of the big unknowns about this is how quickly you and I as patients are going to trust groups of doctors instead of our doctor, how quickly we're going to be comfortable sitting with a group of physicians and other clinicians deciding what the right course is for me or my family member, how quickly we're going to trust non-personal, hands-on solutions like these technologies I was describing and how deep that trust is going to go to allow them to get to scale. Those are big questions. We don't know what the answers are going to be. Because most of us still want our own doc who knows us, has our history, knows our families, knows our illnesses, can help us get through the system. We still want the cowboy. That's a really important question. But one thing seems to be quite clear, and that is, that moving from this concept of independence and autonomy that is the sort of the, the, it's been the professional identity of most of us as physicians to one of collaboration and collaborative problem solving seems to be a movement that cuts across those three models and it seems to be moving with some steadiness as an, an emerging new model. And what it basically says is it's not adequate to, for me to stand next to specialist one and specialist two and specialist three and do this with a patient, it's called, which is called referring. It's, it's lateraling, right? What's really important is for me to stand with that doctor two, doctor three, doctor four, doctor five, nurse, pharmacist, etc., and the patient and the family and say, what's going to work for you? Let's pool our brains Collaborative practice seems to be a theme that runs through this. It's critically important. Healthcare is probably the only uh, profession in which that is not the rule. We're the last bastion. We're the last cowboys. So let me make one final comment. And it comes from Atul Gawande, not surprisingly. At the close of his commencement speech, he made the following observation. Quote, said, I talked to some cowboys or a cowboy recently, and here's what he told me. Quote, they have tightly organized teams with everyone assigned specific positions and communicating with each other constantly. They have protocols and checklists for bad weather, emergencies, the inoculations they must dispense. Even the cowboys, it turns out, function like pit crews now. They become teams. Thank you very much. Excellent points. Just have one question around mid-level providers. Um, it takes eight years to produce a physician, and it takes two years to convert a registered nurse into a nurse practitioner. Any thoughts on supplementing the divide with well-informed, well-connected mid-levels? It's another possible way of filling this gap between the physician supply and the demand. The AAMC, the American Association of Medical Colleges, have tried to project what the supply could be of physician assistants, nurse practitioners, and other mid-level professionals who could fill that gap. And unfortunately, it's not enough to get even close to filling the need in primary care. But it will help. The, the, the issue is, as many of you know who have been involved in hospital care, 
and, and also ambulatory care. There's a nursing shortage, although it's, it's, uh, it varies. It, it tends to be a little more volatile in terms of shortage than physician shortages. But there is a nursing shortage, and there's particularly a nursing shortage in the hospitals in more acute settings. You have to ask the question, does it really make sense for us to try and solve the problem by training nurses out of nursing into nurse practitioning and away from the other services that they are really uniquely qualified to do, are there other solutions that we can come up with? We haven't been very good at increasing the enrollments of nursing, although there has been some increase. I don't mean to say it's been flat. Um, so it's, a, it's an important part of the, of the puzzle, but even in the 1960s and 70s, when we were training a lot of physician assistant nurse practitioners for a perceived uh, shortage of primary care physicians, we couldn't get enough out there to fill the gap. But it's, a, it's, it's one solution. Yeah, yeah, thank you for raising it. Hi, my name is Nadine, and I used to work for you. I mean, you used to be my boss. So oh, my I'm goodness. Organization. <laughs> I hope it was a good experience. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, just going through the learning process of electronic records. Okay. And I guess it's more of a comment that, and a hopeful for the future because a lot of us old cowboys are dying off. Yeah. And the new generations of doctors and providers are going to school with doctors, training with nurses, training with pharmacists in their classes. Yeah. So they're learning how to be a team. They also don't want to work as many hours. That's right. And so the team-based approach is more ingrained in the younger trainees and the younger doctors. And they're much more, they're earlier, they're better adopters of the electronic systems. Yes. So I can see actually emerging of several of your three primary groups to really make a really healthy and robust clinical system as opposed to right now the key is well managed yeah and a lot of the teams that are up there we're just not well managed yeah. just yet yeah good well that's it's it's encouraging to hear because getting physicians to train with non-physicians during medical school so that you begin to learn how to make decisions together uh, you learned how to do collaborative problem solving basically it's still not the norm. Um, uh, I was approached maybe six or eight years ago at UCSF after giving a talk, and, and one of the deans of, a non, of the non-medical school, another one of the health profession schools, came up to me and said, we get about four hours of shared class time with the physicians in four years, and everybody is talking about doing what you're doing, so I'm delighted to hear that you're seeing some of the younger physicians coming out with that, and they're getting that experience in residency as well. They're also electronically really savvy, so the, the tools that we're beginning to make available, like the electronic medical record, like some of the search, the search functions, the, you know, the expert systems behind them, et cetera, those can be accessed. You know, us old people like me, <laughs> you know, I'm a, I'm a Luddite, you know, I could barely turn mine on, so it's, uh, it, it's, a welcome shift. My day job takes me to the underserved communities, and my wife, who happens to be in the healthcare field, uh, is co-chairing a national committee on uh, with the American Telemedicine Association to write uh, business models to how, to how to accelerate the development of these programs. And one of the things that I think that we have seen that we that in our own feeling is that a lot of this has been done from the top down rather than the bottom up. And we see a lot of the uh, demos, instead of, uh, instead of sustainable models, there's been a lot of, of uh, grant funding and so forth. Yeah. And it, it has not come with, a, with business plans behind it. I just want to know what your thought is on that. Right now I'm in the early stage of reading a book that I'm finding fascinating, I'd recommend in relation to what you've just said. It's called Boulevard of Broken Dreams. And it's by uh, Josh, 
oh, well, just lost his name. He's, the, he's at the business school at Harvard. It's a book on the misguided attempts to try and stimulate innovation and entrepreneurship in a top-down way from government. And listen, I'm not a, I'm not, you know, a, a, a radical on the right or a radical on the left about this issue. I, I really do believe that government can play a role in this if they play it properly. And his book is an attempt to try and understand what is good top-down work rather than uh, uh, inappropriate or stultifying top-down work. Unfortunately, most in healthcare has been stultifying. And I agree with you. It's part of the reason that I got very interested in venture because that's another source of capital for financing both social entrepreneurship as well as economic entrepreneurship. And we're seeing some really exciting stuff come out of that. My biggest fear, in fact, with the health reform legislation was not that it would go through. I'm delighted it went through personally. That's a personal bias. But that it would freeze a lot of the innovations that were occurring because people who write that legislation basically are most influenced by the status quo, by the constituents who have power. And that's just the way of life here. So you don't get the kind of freedom and the flexibility and the funds that are coming out to help you that you need to be really uh, responsive to your own communities. We're, try we're seeing some interesting things coming out of the foundations, and I think Mark Smith and, and, and the foundation, the California Healthcare Foundation, is one of the sponsors of this, uh, are building a, a, a venture fund, basically, to fund social entrepreneurship in exactly the way that venture capital does for the economic uh, entrepreneurship. And I think that's a really important new direction. PATH is doing that in the international setting. So there's some interesting things that build on exactly the principle you described. I'm a nurse by profession. Uh, the Health Care Reform Act that was passed, I admit, I haven't read all of it, but I'm still confused as to what it's supposed to set out to accomplish. As a physician, can you kind of give us your opinion of, do you think it's, well, I know you kind of touched on it briefly, but do you think there's some uh, room for improvement in it? If so, could you tell us what that might be? I, I supported it. I'm glad it passed. I believe that it is a right move for the country, so I'll start there. I believe it's right because for one thing, we're doing the dumbest, we're paying for the people who don't have insurance coverage in the dumbest way we possibly could as a country now. And that is we're asking them to delay care as long as possible and then come into our hospitals and emergency rooms where we shift their costs onto the paying customer. It's a tax. We already pay for it. So the notion that it's an added burden to the country financially is not quite accurate. It's, it's, it's rhetoric. There will be some added costs, but as you know, this, the uh, Congressional Budget Office, CBO, identified that over a 10-year period as not being significant, not being that high. A lot of people don't like that answer, but it seemed they're the best, most objective group. So there's a lot going on on the insurance side in that bill that's really important. Coverage, guaranteed issue, all of those sorts of things. Constraints on, on uh, insurance companies that are long overdue in my mind uh, and limits on what they can and can't do in underwriting, long overdue in my, in my opinion. There are also a number of things in healthcare delivery that are included in the bill, all of which would be beneficial to patients. They have to be rolled out, but it's the idea of saying, look, Medicare is not going to pay if you don't practice evidence-based care. What the hell have we invested uh, close to $3 trillion in science, development of science since World War II for if we're not using the evidence that came out of it, if we're denying the science? 
don't do that. Not a good, not a good way to practice. <laughs> so there are a lot of things like that. Safety, children's care, women's care, mental health care, and so on. If you look at the bill carefully, there are a whole series of things that are included in there that if they are properly implemented, and that's a, obviously a big concern, could have dramatic improvement to the country's health care. Um, if you don't like government in health care, you probably should have gone to another country about 1965 when Medicare was passed <laughs> and Medicaid. I mean, Medicare and Medicaid currently account for about 40, 38 to 40% of expenditures in health care. That's been going on since the 60s. So this is not socialized medicine all of a sudden. Don't get me wound up about it. I mean, the rhetoric, the rhetoric around this is absolutely insane. Now, that said, Obama has done a terrible job of discussing the health reform legislation. He has couched it in terms of getting the insurance companies. And I don't understand why he's doing that. Uh, I have friends who are trying to change that uh, conversation at the White House and make it much more about the opportunities to improve quality and safety and access for patients, which is really the cornerstone of this thing. And that is something that American people really feel quite positive about. You, I just gave a political answer to your question, so <laughs> I apologize. I, <laughs> thank you for the question. I'd be glad to talk to you at, at, over uh, wine, and then we could really get into it, okay? I was interested in what you were saying about the accountable care model. And isn't there a danger that uh, the interests of the group and the patient could be misaligned? Because if you're just paying them a lump sum, yep. it would seem the less they spent on the care for the patients, the more they could keep for themselves. Yep. And isn't it, if you had more of a model where you were paying for results, the patients and the group's interests would be more in line? And are there any test cases where pay for results models are actually being employed now and how's that going? That has been the concern about capitation payments. It's the opposite of fee-for-service payment. Fee-for-service, you're paid on a piece, a piece base, you're going to do more pieces, right? More surgery, more care, more treatment. We have scads of evidence that that's what happens. On the other side, capitation, where you're paid a lump sum, the danger is exactly what you described. So there has to be transparency about how the care is given. And there has to be some reward for making, or and penalties for making sure you're either you're practicing your base on the basis of evidence basis, evidence-based care, you're monitoring safety and outcomes, and uh, there are a lot of attempts to do that. Uh, the National uh, Committee on Quality Assurance (NCQA) has developed a lot of measures for that. HEDIS measures, which are commonly done in healthcare systems, are all attempts to try and make sure that that squandering or skimping on care isn't occurring. You also want to know what's happening to the population enrolled because you can't just look at the patient. That's the numerator, but you enroll a population of people who sometimes use the system and become patients, but oftentimes aren't patients. What happens to their health status? How many immunizations are they getting? Are they getting the proper screening for, uh, for illnesses that we know how to prevent? All of those have to be part of the, uh, of the evaluation. Pay for performance has been a little tricky uh, because what we've tried to do is take the cowboy and pay him for delivering cattle. You know, we've, we've said, look, if you deliver healthy cattle, we'll give you a little more money. Well, the problem is it's not, one, it's not one cowboy that delivers a herd of cattle. It's a team of cowboys. So how do you pay a team for that? How do you pay a team of doctors for delivering outstanding care? We're still wrestling and experimenting with pay for performance. It's very important. And you put your finger on a key dilemma about the accountable care organizations that I know, I mean, the person in charge of CMS is an old dear friend, Don Berwick, and 
Don has been wrestling like mad with his team trying to put together guidelines for the ACO that protect exactly against that. That's a wonderful question. Thank you. My name is Rachel, and um, I have been working for the past several years in public health, um, most recently with the community clinics and health centers in Los Angeles. Oh, terrific. Um, and next year, I'm actually heading to medical school. Um, and one of the reasons that I wanted to head to medical school is to practice primary care, because Good. I feel that there's a really big need for family practice physicians, internists, Great. et cetera. Um, and I thought that some of what you talked about you know, made a lot of sense in terms of practicing in teams. But I wanted to know specifically, do you have any sense or any you know, thoughts about how the actual day-to-day -day practice of primary care physicians might change? You know, moving well, forward yeah, and with these developments, yes, I, you could look into the future. Oh, God, <laughs> I'll give you one crystal ball. And actually what I'd recommend is if you go on to the New Yorker website and look at Atul Gwandi's uh, stuff, and you've probably read about his hotspot, his article on the hotspot with Rashika, I can't remember Rashika's last name, but he's a physician practicing in, in New Jersey in, with a union population of people who are recent immigrants who have a high prevalence of, of chronic disease and often are high users of the care system and very non-compliant, non I hate the word, but they, they don't understand or they don't follow, they choose not to follow. They have great difficulty following the Western care that we provide. What I loved about that is the description of the way he spends his day. He spends it with his team and with patients having conversations. Now let me give you an analog because I think it answers your question. I have a, a very dear friend who is a cardiothoracic surgeon. His name is Paul Ulig, U-H-L-I-G, and he used to practice as part of the Dartmouth faculty in Concord, New Hampshire. I think it was New Hampshire. And I went to see him one day and watched the way he did something called team rounds. It was fascinating. We walked into the room of a patient who was 48 hours post-op for four-vessel bypass surgery. And I don't know if any of you has ever taken care of a patient with bypass surgery. They hurt. It is not easy surgery. They're in pain. I walked in, this guy was laughing. What the heck's going on? What drugs he on? I want to find out, you know, you know let me have some. <laughs> um, we walked in, he was laughing, his family was there. The whole team gathered around the bed, and the first question that the head nurse asked was, what did we forget to do that we told you we were going to do yesterday? Holy smokes, I just about fell over. Tell us what we screwed up on. Wrote it all down. Second question, what is it that you want us to take care of today? What's bothering you? What are your questions? Again, all around the, the group. And then after that was done, each of the, the nurse, the pharmacist, blah, 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 the doc, etc., engaged in a conversation about what the next stages of the treatment were going to be. The thing that was fascinating to me is, had I not known, I would not have been able to tell who Paul Ulig was, which was the doctor in that conversation. It was beautiful. And not surprisingly, patient satisfaction measured quite rigorously was superb, Outcomes were better than any of the other cardiothoracic surgeons in that group. And he was getting very complex cases. He was an extraordinarily well-trained cardiothoracic surgeon. And he was fired. And he was fired because the medical staff, led by a cardiologist, were threatened by the fact that this surgeon had flattened the hierarchy and that the doctor was no, no longer hegemonous. 
So it's a way of skating completely around your wonderful question, saying I have no idea. I was just wondering, uh, in your talk, um, what your opinion was, was uh, if you would include government as a part of that collaboration, you know, NCQA, national guidelines, you know, given the variation in care from one region to another, you know, a lot of physicians out there, as you know, don't practice evidence-based care and just having, yeah. you know, some people would be afraid of calling it big brother, but, but uh, just the, the role of government as part of that team. Certainly the data that's provided through NCQA or HEDIS or CMS, some of the requirements that they're putting out now, all of those become part of the grist for the mill of collaboration because they help you identify where you've got weaknesses in your care and then collaboratively you go after that to try and fix it. Most of the time these are issues that you can't fix by changing the way you practice alone, but rather they involve the entire team of people in the way you take care of a patient from start to finish. So it's a great conversation starter, whether it comes from government or, or uh, you know, JCO or NCQA or other agencies that are more independent. So that kind of big brother involvement I think is entirely appropriate because no one else, no other entities really have the wherewithal to gather that kind of comparative data across the country. I also say that about the, the Dartmouth Atlas work, the small area variation analysis has gotten so controversial. It's actually wonderful work. It's been published since 1977, 75. So it's, you know, it's 35 years of history of, of publishing this stuff. It's very credible work. That's another source of very useful information in these conversations about how you're going to manage yourself as a team. So in that sense, I think there's a role for Big Brother. It's data. Uh, beyond that, I sure as heck don't want them saying, this is how you take care of that patient. That would be a real invasion and inappropriate to boot because the evidence isn't strong enough for us in many cases to be able to say, this is the right way to take care of a patient. What we generally have evidence for is to say, these are the boundaries of what the evidence suggests we can practice within and be appropriate. Step outside the boundaries and whack. You know, that's wrong. That's not good for patient care. We did a study a number of years ago as an example in Orange County with Kaiser. It was interesting, Kaiser Permanente, in a pediatrics group and found that there were, we asked the question, how do you take care of a kid with mild asthma? And there were 15 different physicians practicing in that group and there were probably 15 different ways of doing it. Look at the evidence and what happened is you moved from 15 to about three or four pathways that you could follow. But you still had to exercise judgment as a clinician, use those eight years of training or 12 years of training to make those judgments, but within, those, within that corral. But I don't want anybody else telling me that. And by the way, if you're trained properly as a physician, this was where the, the good side of the cowboy training comes in. You won't accept that, that information from somebody outside. You've got to do it yourself. You've got to learn it as a team of physicians and go through the evidence yourself and come to those conclusions. Thank you so much for the, uh, the presentation. My name is Rishi. I'm a primary care physician. I'm glad to hear that I am not obsolete. And I am too, Rishi. I would hate to be able to hate to say that to you. <laughs> and actually, the question is regarding, and thanks for holding this, is regarding um, the takeoff point of the pit crew that you ended your presentation with. Um, as a primary care physician, someone who's worked in community clinics in South Central Los Angeles for the past four years, one of the things that I'm intrigued by is not only the, the quickly emerging model of the pit crew within the primary care clinic, but the fact that there are um, interesting evolutions along the same lines of pit crews being formed in other sectors. Especially, so explain what you mean to the sure. audience with so that. So in law, uh, we have a medical legal partnership, for instance, in our community clinic, where, believe it or not, lawyers 
sit right next to a doctor, not physically sometimes, but in the same clinic. And when a patient comes in, particularly underserved patients come in with incredible social or legal barriers that present themselves with some sort of physical manifestation that I, as a primary care doctor, am geared to take care of, um, the best treatment is not only to take to, to treat that manifestation, that health problem, but also to link them in a preventative way to right. the pit crew in the law field that's right next door. Right. Similar questions about pit crews in you know, business and, and uh, housing and public health. So right. as a pit crew is formed across the track, um, where are the disruptive innovations in connecting our pit crew with those other ones? I don't think they're out there yet uh, to do that in any kind of knowledge-generating way, kind of knowledge-gathering way, or even shared decision-making kind of way. I think it's still very isolated. It was, goes back to the earlier question of these innovations are still popping up, they're still small, they're not at scale yet. That would obviously, that would be an obvious opportunity for entrepreneurship or perhaps social entrepreneurship to start linking you uh, at least so you can share your insights and the kinds of solutions you're coming up with, a kind of knowledge model. But there's also a shared decision-making model where if you don't, for example, have the wherewithal to have a particular kind of lawyer or a particular kind of social work capability or transportation specialist that you can link to somebody else in another place, much as we do with telemedicine, the same principle. So it's a great model. I would add, and most people don't really appreciate this, Don Berwick um, was the founder of something called the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, and he did this for 20 or 25 years. He was the father of the modern quality improvement movement in, in the United States medicine. He's now the head of CMS, that very controversial guy, that communist that uh, Obama uh, named. Um, he's fantastic. He, by the way, he was supported by the AMA, the American Hospital Association, the American Nurses Association, the Small Business, or the uh, Chamber of Commerce, everybody else, but he's a a, a communist, uh, and, and never could understand why he wasn't just put through without even a whimper. He's the best person in the country. He made a really interesting comment about, about uh, the whole issue of quality and, and the issue of community clinics and the capability of bringing various resources to bear to help patients navigate their social issues that devolve into medical care problems. One of the problems we've had with the cowboy model is very interesting. It's not possible in the fee-for-service payment system for a fee-for-service doc operating alone to pull together those resources. You have to refer to it. You don't get paid for having a nurse practitioner often or having a nurse or a social worker. It comes out of your nut what you can charge for a visit. Don often made the comment that based on his experience going around the country, some of the best care in the country was being provided by community clinics. More comprehensive, more dealing with the social issues and the human issues, the work issues, the family issues that have a dramatic impact on medical care and medical care outcomes. And it may be, I'll give you a, sort of a free advertisement about this, but what I find fascinating is for years, we've struggled with the fact that improvements in morbidity and mortality, or stated in the reverse, causes of morbidity and mortality, if you break it down, only about 10 to 12, 14% of it is reachable through medical care. The rest is through environmental issues, social issues, genetic issues. And genetic, by the way, is a very small part of it. And we have had one heck of a time as a nation, as have most other countries, who have used the Western model of medical care, 
We've had a heck of a time trying to figure out how to work in that social milieu, in that environmental milieu, and how to marry it with what we do so well in medical care. And it's the places that have the resources to pull together the kinds of pit crews that were just described that seem to do the best job and produce the best outcomes. And they're dealing oftentimes with the most difficult patients that we have to deal with. Thank you very much. I look forward to talking with you.